This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello, I am Lisa Traeger. And I am Kara Clank. Welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. Every week we talk about an episode of Law & Order SVU, the crime that it is based on. And we have an amazing guest every week that was in the episode we chat about. And right now we have huge news uh, to share with everybody. Yes. Kara and I <laughs> were lucky enough to be invited to a Zoom bachelorette party. And there was a stripper on Zoom. We got a Zoom stripper. And I think that's the best thing that's happened to me in 2021. We got our own personal bolo, y'all. We just told you guys last week about the world's most epic bachelorette party on Real Houses of Atlanta. And then we had ourselves a virtual version of it. And it was really, really hilarious and funny and was my toddler sort of in and out yeah she was okay it was five o'clock uh, there was another mom <laughs> breastfeeding and pumping during the strip tease as well um we're a varied group of women and he didn't pay for this advertisement but we are going to shout out billy rock entertainment um, billy rock entertainment <laughs> if you need an online exotic dancer this guy did he did like honestly he did like performance art like lyrical movement and then like and then he like gets a cape he he i mean he takes off his you don't see penis or anything like but i don't think that's what anybody was like really um going for but like he was really sweet we were like tipping him venmo we had a really good time in the chat you think it's gonna be awkward i don't know maybe we just have a good group of girlfriends or something but like you think it's gonna be awkward and it was really fun like the chat was making me die like everybody was being great I mean, it was weird when he kissed his uh, cross necklace and uh, made a movement to the Lord in the sky while um, his while he turned his cape into a skirt and showed us his butt cheeks. That was definitely a silly moment. He also was in his kitchen and there was like a little placard on his table that said blessed. So you could tell he loved the Lord immediately. And um, we were all on board. We also saw his treadmill. There was a garbage can in the background. <laughs> but my favorite part of Billy Rock, besides his perfect eyebrows and body, was um, in the beginning he went oh I think my roommate has some vodka I'll take a shot with you guys and it's like <laughs> you could have lied and said it's your own vodka like why <laughs> why did you tell us you had a roommate Billy I don't let us have the that. fantasy that you can afford to live alone Billy <laughs> yeah but he was um, yeah he was amazing so I, I, and then I kept thinking his roommate was gonna walk in then I kept thinking oh man the roommate's gonna come home at some point this is gonna be a real sitcom but uh, you should Billy Rock Entertainment it was it was so fun and funny so my daughter was having a full just like 
woke up too late from a nap and was having a meltdown and just needed to be with me, even though my husband was home trying to take care of her. And she was sitting on my lap and then went, but for, for the beginning part of the bachelorette. And then when the stripper came out, I was like, okay, we need to walk away. And then I just kept like popping back in to like see the stripper. But then she would be coming, following me to be like, what are you looking at mama? There was also two girls driving in a car while watching the strip yeah. show. <laughs> Like people that's, the beauty of, that's the beauty of the online strip show bachelorette party is that you can be a girl on the go and you can still attend. You know, it was incredible. We also had dramatic injuries. Your daughter got injured. I had to take <sighs> my parents cat to the ER twice because they're so annoying. It's been a really emotional week. Yeah. My daughter had her first um, injury that drew blood where she she hit her head. It's very she got the glue, the surgical glue. She's fine. Um, but. You know, it's like for me, it was like my husband was more traumatized than anyone else. He was like, I was like, I have to talk him down. He's sensitive. Yeah, he is sensitive. But yeah, she was fine. It was just like, you know, when you're calling plastic surgeons and you're like, hi, I have a 23 month old. You wouldn't believe how hard it is to get a plastic surgeon in L.A. to pay attention to you when you're not getting your tits done. I didn't realize that cuts and scrapes lead to plastic surgery if it's on the face if it's on the face you know if it's a really big laceration like you really do kind of want to get a plastic surgeon so that you don't get a bad scar she didn't end up needing it i just couldn't tell you know like i'm I'm not a doctor so um but it was she got on the phone with my mom my mom's a doctor so i called my mom to see what to do and my mom and she was all calm and she got on the phone and i showed her to my mom and she goes i got a boo-boo grandma and started crying and i was like i'm gonna cry this is so this is so emotional but it's also cute it was so cute it was so cute but it was like she had calmed down but then seeing my mom who she's not met in real life for the past 15 months she hasn't seen my mom since she's had a memory you know like so it was just cute it's nice she knows she still knows her grandma yeah but then what happened to your cat a uti um (laughs) (laughs) that cat's been fucking (laughs) and her thyroid was fucked but my parents are just and it's the i don't blame them like my dad's brother died in surgery in russia in the former soviet union because the doctor was drunk and fucked up the surgery oh my god and then um we've just had lots like i understand his fear and then his other brother also died in surgery at an older age and so like everyone is just like terrified of doctors and they've passed it on to me which i'm not appreciative of like i wait till it is the worst case scenario before I go to the doctor. And I have friends that are like, oh, I have a cough going to the doctor. And I wish I had that. I'm not I'm have a cough, but I go to the dermatologist every year to get my moles checked. I go to the the OBGYN every year for my thing. Like, I'm just very pro, especially because health insurance is so scarce. Like, I've had moments where I thought I didn't have health insurance. And so when I have it, I'm like, I'm going. But I don't go just for like every sniffle. No. And when we moved to America, the dentist tried uh, tried to convince my mom to knock all her teeth out. What? And just get fake teeth. Yeah. And she's like, I'm going to keep my teeth. And they're like, oh, it's not worth it. Like they were just trying to take her teeth. So they're just distrusting of medical stuff. And so her cat wasn't eating. And I was like, let me just take her. And they refused. And then they finally let me, but not overnight and this and that. And then my parents were like, listen, Lisa, we've lived a lot of life and 
this is it. We just have to say bye and let her die slowly. And let I was the like, cat die of a UTI. Yeah. And I was like, you guys are out of control. I'm taking her. She's now jumping around, running, meeting me at the door, eating normally, <laughs> just like living a full life. Like she is 13, but they were just like, Lisa, it's time to let her go. I, I was like, they I hate don't think me. so. They distrust medicine and doctors, but they also like just they just like had a they just have. What am I trying to say? I don't know. It's just confusing. (laughs) Just like an acceptance of the afterlife. They're just like, this is how she goes. Sorry. It's I guess I have a paper cut. Good night. It's been a nice life. Like, I don't (laughs) understand. Well, because our friend Julia, she did tell me I was like, I don't know. Russia really fucked up my parents. And she goes, yeah, I guess when your government is going after you and your people, it might affect you a little bit. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> when you're the targeted attack of the government, you might it might affect your uh beliefs. You know, I watch the Americans and I always think about that because they're always like, we're gonna go back. We're gonna go back. And I'm like, why are you going back? You have a very nice life in Washington, DC. Like they I are don't brainwash. Think- they're brainwashed. Yeah. I I um in the group chat I revealed my dad said he'll get the vaccine when Putin gets the vaccine. Like Putin's waiting on something. And it's like who why who is Putin? What who he we're not even living there. Why are you he's no, like and so- Putin has the vaccine. Putin <laughs> Putin got vaccinated a year ago, I bet you. Like, Putin yeah. is so vaccinated. They're brainwashed. You know, watching the Americans, too, I was like, why do you want to go back? Like, this They'd be sucks. like, I can't wait to go back with our kids. I'm like, your f- kids that have lived a free life in America are going to love. And, like, every time they go back and they show the USSR, it looks so terrible on the show. I'm like, wh- people are, like, fighting in bread lines and, like, the supermarket has nothing on the shelves. I'm like, yeah, get back there. It looks fun. Um, <laughs> anyway. No, I'm sure there's beautiful parts of Russia, by the way. And don't come for me. No, um, I was just thinking that too. I was like, great. <laughs> People are going to be pissed about our anti-Russia rhetoric. Putin fans are going to. What if a bunch of Putin people are listening to Yeah, us? we have we just have like Putin fans listening to us. Um, oh, wait. Speaking of people that do listen to us, we put out a question last week about ADAs. We were like, why was Casey Novak at the scene in that episode? Like, do ADAs go to the scene? Why was Carisi doing the unassisted pull-up? Do ADAs go to the scene? We have Upwards of five listeners who are ADAs, which I think is really exciting. We got at least five or six messages, which means that there's probably more out there. ADAs who listen to our podcast, who told us varying things. Most of them said there's no way in hell that ADAs would go to a crime scene because then they become a witness to like the crime where they could contaminate the crime scene or something. But then other people were like, there are some cases where they do go for walkthroughs and blah, blah, blah. But mostly it was that SVU is exaggerating it. Anyway, I'm just like shocked and honored that we have so many ADAs. And our listeners are so nice. I'm not used to this from the internet. We posted the <laughs> article. We we are in a magazine in Ireland. <laughs> and people were like, that's what I like to see. I tell everyone, way to go, girls. I'm like, who are you guys? Like, <laughs> can you please get on my personal Twitter and start yeah. uh, start gassing me Start up? lifting her up over on her, pers- on her personal, guys. Glitter cheese. Get on it. She needs this. But let's get going because we've got a great episode for today. It's one of the most haunting and favorite episodes. And I it- it's probably one of the ones I've seen the most times. I've seen it so many times. You say that every single episode. <laughs> Lisa, haunting? You are just haunted. Get out of here. <laughs> I know. Lisa is perpetually haunted, but I have seen this one like several, several times. All right. Let's get into it. Uh, this episode is Stranger. It is season 10, episode 11. 
we uh, open the episode with a little boy running scared down a hallway, like a little red herring for the show. And his mom, he runs to his mom's arms and it turns out it's just his aunt Nikki is chasing him in a mask. And she's like, take a chill pill, mom. We're just playing. But also, what is that mask? A burned man? Yeah, like, that mask, what? the mask is pretty terrifying. It is like just like a ghoul mask. Um, and then in the living room, Erica and, and Nikki's parents are playing Wii. It's like, just like a real sign of the times. It's just like two old people playing like Wii baseball. And I, I kind of love that. The mom, who I recognize and looked up from her IMDb, plays Jesse Pinkman's mom in Breaking Bad. So she answer, answers the door and a girl is standing there and she's like, can I help you? And the girl's like, it's me. And then the mom doesn't recognize her. And then Erica comes up behind her and notices the shamrock tattoo on her hand and goes, mom, it's Heather and gives her a big hug. Now we cut to Olivia and Elliot getting a scoop from another detective. Heather Hallander went missing at age 14, four years earlier. I just don't really buy that people's faces change that much from age 14 to 18, but it does turn out that she was much heavier when she went missing and like now is super, super skinny. So that may have changed what she looked like, but I don't know. It just seems weird to me. Uh, and then they, the, the detective reveals that she ran away. Everyone thought she ran away because her parents were about to ship her off to dot, 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 fat camp, which is what they call it in the episode. And Lisa's going to talk for a second about her actual experience with a weight loss camp. And so if anyone has a problem with that, please fast forward a couple minutes. Lisa, I didn't know if maybe you wanted to weigh in here <laughs> as someone who's been a counselor at a fat camp. I did work at fat camp. Um, I would just say the one I was at was immoral, but <laughs> I'm sure there are some good health based ones, but they were giving these kids diet Doritos and making them run up a hill. And yeah, it was intense. Okay. Meanwhile, what's a diet Dorito? That Can I have some? That. I didn't know you could. <laughs> but what was very cool, it was, it was the fat camp that was featured on MTV's True Life. So obviously at 20 years old, I was very thrilled about all of that. Um, and it was just like the movies. Like I had, I found bubble gum and hair dryers uh, and rolled up socks. There were snacks, like <laughs> candies were everywhere. I did find, I mean, I had, the, I had the teen girls. So I also found bags of prescription pills that weren't allowed. And it was a dark place because... Our number one job was we had to walk around the camp at night to make sure people weren't fucking. Oh, those kids are horny. They're horny. They're horny like our listeners. So we <laughs> so we would have to take flashlights and go on Nookie Patrol to make sure people weren't humping and we didn't have like a baby being born at camp. Yeah. See, I worked at an all girls camp, so I didn't really have to deal with that except at dances with the brother camp. But sounds yeah. like. At no. your camp, it was a problem. Yeah. And the population is four girls to one guy. So it was just like, <laughs> people, yeah, the guys were raking it in. I don't know. Wow. It was a wild place. But I got fired because I failed a breathalyzer and I was underage. And then I had a great time in New York City after they bust me. <laughs> yes. Back. I always hear about your trip to New York after you got fired from vet <laughs> camp. Yeah, the firing sucked. And I got betrayed by my co-counselor. And she told on me because I was wasted the night before and I was underage. Judas. Judas, for sure. She was from Oregon and I fucking hate her. And she <laughs> talked to her boyfriend on the phone every night. I just, it's like, let a girl be hung over. Like, I can't believe you would want someone to get fired for drinking too much at 20 years old. Yeah, for being fun. 
it's not like I had to like six year olds. I had 17 year old girls, which one of them is my friend. Um, one of the, my campers was 18 years old from Sweden and she's a famous opera singer, but also you're like an adult at 18 in Europe. So it was weird. Like she was like, what are these rules? I can drink and live a life in Sweden. Uh, <laughs> but after I got fired, I was wheeled away in a golf cart and she just waved to me slowly. And, um, as I got sent to New York on the bus. <laughs> oh, and I walked on fire. We had like a special event and we wrote things that bother us on boards. And then we broke the boards and then we burnt the boards and then we walked on the burning boards. Wow. Um, like we got over our issues. Should we do that when you come to LA? <laughs> yes. Burn some boards. Okay. Bitch. We'll do it in my backyard on my fake grass where our friends already burnt a hole in my lawn. So the detective shows them the old missing poster. You you see the like the missing Heather and you're like, OK, I guess this could be her. But this this girl, Heather, that's back now says that she's been a sex slave for the past four years. So now we're at the Hallander's home. Olivia and Elliot go to interview Heather and she won't like immediately come out of her room. And we're getting a lot of attitude from Nikki, the quote unquote screw up middle child, as she calls herself. And she just freely admits that she used to call her sister Heather Heifer. And that that's kind of what happened the day she went missing. She stormed out of the house because she was upset that her sister called her this name. And Nikki's like, she probably blames me for the whole thing. And then Heather comes out and is like, I never blamed you one time. And she is just so self-centered. Your sister comes home from being a sex slave and missing. And you're just like, oh, so you blame me, huh? Yeah. It, the, Nikki sucks. She looks like she loves Paramore, which is a great band, but that's her <laughs> vibe. <laughs> Very Avril Lavigne type, you know. Yeah. Kristen Ritter, another Breaking Bad reference, but looks like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Punk rock. So Benson notices that Heather has already showered and Nikki's like, yeah, three times. Hope no one else needed hot water. It's like, your sister was a sex slave. She can shower as many times as she needs. And do you pay the water bill? I don't yeah. think so. It yeah. seems like your parents do. It's a very murder. odd response. We're definitely getting some red flag vibes from Nikki. Um, so now they're getting like their story from Heather. Elliot and Olivia. And she says that a man grabbed her. She doesn't know his name. She's been with him the whole time. He made her call him daddy and he kept her in a concrete room. And then one day he was drunk and forgot to put the padlock on the door. And she just ran out into the basement, up the stairs and kept running. She doesn't know where or how far. Then she says the last time he sexually assaulted her was yesterday. So Elliot gathers her clothes and Olivia is like, what about your underwear? And she's like, he never let me wear any. Very creepy. We see there's like a long scene of Heather getting her physical exam as she recounts like how the man grabbed her and like what her life was like in this basement. And like she said, basically what happened was she after she got into the fight with Nikki, she was crying in the street. A man came up to her and said she was too pretty to be crying. So please don't let a man say that to you. We're all pretty enough to be crying. You can cry whenever you want. Just, uh, you're too pretty to cry is basically a level up from you're pretty when you smile. Uh, so he lured her into this van. She didn't get in, but he put ether or something in a rag over her face to make her pass out. And then all she remembers is she woke up on a concrete floor naked. She screamed for help, pounded on the door. There was a mattress on the ground. She said she just laid down and cried. And then he would come in, he would lock the door from the inside and like get on top of her. And um, basically she was like, if I couldn't be nice, he'd let me starve to death. And um, she thought she went a week without eating and it was actually two days. So I think that 
just goes to show how long we think we can survive without food. But mentally, uh, it's much less time. He kept her in the room the whole time. No windows, no running water. He would lower a garden hose down. And they were like, what did you use for a toilet? And she was like a lawn chair with a bucket over under it. So pretty... Pretty horrendous. They try to retrace her steps. They're in Columbus Circle, which seems like, I don't know. I don't know it's how many It's the people- most confusing place in Manhattan. Like, yeah. besides anything downtown, because there's no numbers. But that circle and how the streets go with the park, I yeah. would have meetings there and get lost every single time. Right, because there's different, the subways get out at different points of the circle. So you don't know, if you don't know the area, I used to live near there, so I know the area, but like, you, if you don't know your north or south, you can literally just end up very lost there because it is just like a huge rotunda. But it doesn't strike me as like the kind of neighborhood where I, I don't know. I think if you're living near Columbus Circle, I don't know. I guess you could have a basement with a with a sex slave in it, I suppose, anywhere. So I don't know what I'm talking about. So she thinks Olivia is judging her for not getting out sooner. And Olivia's like, girl, no, I'm not. Um, Heather gets really confused. There's like the camera is spinning. So we kind of are like having the same feeling as her of like, where am I? Where is this? Like car at car horns are beeping. It starts to freak her out. She's basically having like a PTSD moment. And, um, she just asks if she can do this the next day so she can be with her family. So the Benson and Stabler drop Heather at home at the top of act two, the press suddenly shows up and starts snapping pictures of her, which I just think is like, so wild. I mean, do they honestly do that? Do they get in the faces of like people that were captured as sex slaves? And like, I thought the- there were rape protection laws where you couldn't just publish photos of people that have been raped. I think but- there are. That's what's like so wild about what happens next. Like Elliot basically tells the photographers to erase the photos and he kind of just moves menacingly towards this photographer who backs up. Cause I think we would all back up if Christopher Maloney was coming at us at a clip. Or go fully in. Yeah, or just <laughs> lean in. But, you know, if he was like, coming at you with his classic Elliot anger eyes, I think you'd probably get moving. And so this guy eventually falls, breaks the camera, and then the next scene is Craig and reading off, like, these demands from the newspaper he works for, The Ledger. But also, the jur- so there's a journalist and a cameraman, but the journalist is like, what, I'm a, a young teen sold into sex slavery? We gotta sell paper. Yeah. Like, do you hear the words coming out of your mouth, you fucking trauma lunatic? And I think the New York Ledger is supposed to be the New York Post like the entire time, like just kind of like a seedy paper that people still read, but is like really. I've said it before on the show. I think the New York Post should only be used to line bird cages. But Cragen's reading off like that the camera cost five thousand dollars and they want disciplinary action against Elliot. And Elliot's like, I never touched the guy. And he's right. He never did. So the guy just fell. But then they pull out the paper and the paper says sex slave in the city. As a fan of sex in the city, not a cool pun, not funny. Like, I just don't that that's the kind of shit that they put on the New York Post headlines all the time. I would like to say I was in Ireland once and there was a store called Snacks in the City, which is a good pun. Yeah, sure. Sure. (laughs) Heather's sister, Erica, the older sister, shows up at the precinct. She's pissed about the photo in the paper. She complains about the missing persons detective. She's like, all they ever did was call us once a month to see if we'd heard from her. And like, she was like, I had to set up my own website to get tips. So I, and then they're like, oh, did you get any? And she's like, not really. Um, so she feels guilty for not going after Heather that day four years ago. She kind of reveals that. So then we find out later that Nikki, the bitch sister, of course, showed Heather the photo. So now Heather doesn't want to leave the house, doesn't want to go do the, re- the scene reenactment to find out where she ran from or anything like that. 
uh, Munch feels like something's up with Nikki. Munch gets a little bit of like a light bulb. He's like, I mean, I think maybe she saw her sister get abducted. Like her bad behavior could be guilt. And also with like her photo being published, her abuser could see that and know, like exactly track her down. It's like so fucked up and irresponsible. It's very, very fucked up. So basically, uh, Olivia says that the medical exam revealed that she did have scarring from like long term abuse, but no fluids, no fluids were found in the exam, but they did find semen on her dress. So that's good that they got some evidence. And then, of course, at exactly the right moment, Munch gets a tip, a phone call. So Munch and Finn go to see this priest who says he witnessed something. Munch goes, it's kosher. Like he always has to get a Jewish joke in, which I love. Um, this priest says that he's seen Heather at mass the last four Sundays. And, and she seemed like she was in a spiritual crisis. She was with a man in her in his 50s, but it's not a man who's on the membership role. So they can't give him any uh, identifying information about this guy. And the priest said, the priest goes, I mean, I wasn't comfortable dropping a dime. I was like, all right, cool priest. What do we do? What's the, the lingo here? Like, so he, the priest is like, should I talk to her? Munch is like, we got it. Um, <laughs> Olivia asks Heather if the man ever took her outside and Heather like very fervently denies it. And then Olivia asks her about the church and she freaks out on Olivia and tells her to leave. And at the precinct, they're all chatting. Huang says that outbursts of rage aren't weird for an abuse victim. And Munch goes, if she was abused. And it's like, they already got the medical exam saying that she had trauma, like physical, like it was already confirmed that she's been abused. So I don't really know why Munch is being a jackass here. Um, And Cragen's like, for all we know, she ran away with her boyfriend. It's like, this has been confirmed. You guys need to shut the hell up. And you're in the special victim unit (laughs) and you've been there for 10 seasons now. (laughs) You know, they're all abused. Like, I just love that there's always one arguing when it's been proven every week. For a decade. And then someone's like, and what about her vitamin D deficiency? And then Munch has like this bizarro theory about how we all have vitamin D deficiencies now because of too much sunscreen. I'm like, okay, okay. Kraken's like, our choices are bone disease or skin cancer. You can't win. I'm like, you guys are so New York-y. Like, you're allowed to get 10 minutes of sun a day. Um, Huang explains that Heather was totally under this guy's control. So taking her out in public might have been like the ultimate power play for him. And Elliot's like, why not scream in the church? And I'm like, do you guys remember what happened to Jeffrey Dahmer's victim who escaped? Jeffrey Dahmer had a victim who escaped, went up to two girls. He was so drugged that he couldn't speak. The police showed up. The police gave him back to Jeffrey Dahmer. So I don't think that there's any guarantees that screaming in church is going to get you saved. And it's probably going to get you ultimately very punished by this person that's keeping you captive. So and, you know, we've learned about there is also the Stockholm uh, syndrome. Yeah. And Huang talks about another case where the captor, the captor and the victim went out and did karaoke together. So like this has this has a precedent, you know. So then Benson gets a call that Heather has attempted suicide. So she goes to the hospital. They rush her into surgery. Eventually, she's okay. Olivia goes to see her and apologizes. And Heather said, she's like, I'm sorry I made you so mad. Like, uh, Olivia feels like responsible for this suicide attempt. And Heather's like, I didn't do this because of you. I just dreamed of being back with my family for so long. And I feel like a freak. I don't belong anywhere. Nobody's comfortable around me. Nikki hates me. My mom won't look me in the eye. And so, like, Olivia tries to comfort her. And um, Elliot goes to talk to the doctor. Like, any tips? Did she say anything when she was under anesthesia or anything like that? And uh, the doctor mentions, he goes, well, Heather's parents are both type A 
and Heather is type B. So there is no way she can be their child. And this is a classic SVU tidbit, a lesson that I will keep forever. But I guess right before surgery or anything, they always have to ask the parent for blood transfusions because there could be some cheating or adopting or whatever. And I like that's something that I've kept with me from this episode forever. But they always have to check too. They always do like a rapid test on their blood test so they can avoid like lawsuits. So uh, at the top of act three, here we are. There's no way Heather is the child of this woman because she has admitted to not having any kind of like infidelities or anything. Olivia is like, how could her own family not recognize her? And then they talk about the age difference and the weight loss. I don't really think she looks like the old Heather. I don't know about you guys. So then they zoom in on the, like they, they overlay their faces first, which is interesting. Like her face is more like oval. Like even if you lose weight, your face shape kind of stays the same. So, um, and then they zoom in on the tattoo and it turns out it's a mirror image tattoo. It's not like you don't, if you overlay them, the little stem of the shamrock goes the other way. So Elliot's like, oh, she's a con artist. So Olivia goes to talk to Heather first. And plays some passive aggressive games, I would say. Olivia's there to play. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Olivia shows up. Heather's working on study guides for college. It seems like a real bounce back from like yesterday. You tried to kill yourself. And today you're like, my dad says I should go to college. Like, okay, everyone deals with trauma in their own way. I was like, if I was in the hospital, I'd be watching SVU. (laughs) But you do your guides. Um, Olivia has Heather's old clarinet because we'd learned earlier in the episode that Heather was first chair clarinet and had actually been kidnapped the day before the spring concert. So uh, Olivia's like, play us a little ditty, Heather. Then Heather's like, I don't really, I don't, I mean, I don't think I could, I don't want to. Like, and then she is like, what's the story behind the tattoo? And Heather's like, I got it at a tattoo parlor. And Olivia's like, actually, you didn't. Nikki's boyfriend gave that tattoo to Heather and they've all gotten big trouble. So we're going to run this DNA and we're going to find out that you're not Heather. Heather breaks down. Olivia's like pissed off and is like, is any of this real? Like, why would you do this? And she's like, because I needed a family and they needed a daughter. So now we're at the Hallander's home. Erica calls Heather. Let's call her Feather now because she's fake Heather. So Erica calls Feather a rancid bitch. Nikki says, I knew it. And the mother knew there was a connection missing, but blamed herself. And it turned out that Feather got all these details from the internet. And then some of it when she arrived from like looking at scrapbooks and like picking up on family like chatter. And they think she's an an EDP, an emotionally disturbed person. And the family wants her arrested. Like who's paying for her in this hospital? Like get her out. Again, Nikki, so concerned with finances. I I don't understand. Not our insurance. You are a dependent. Okay. We know that you you are not paying your own taxes. Like I just have never seen such a fiscally like conservative punk rock girl. The water. This hospital bed. Girl, enough. How much is your hair dye budget? All right. So now we are in court. Heather is being arraigned. Uh, one, one count of identity theft, one count of fraud. The judge is Judge Andrews, who I recognize. So I looked her up. The actress is named Lindsay Krause. She's played a judge on seven episodes of SVU, and this was her first appearance. Fun fact, she was married to the playwright David Mamet and is the mother of Zosha Mamet, a.k.a. Shoshana from Girls. And she has gym teacher vibes. Oh, I think she has rich lady vibes. She has rich lady vibes to me. She talks in, she has almost an accent of like, 
young lady, this prosecutor's giving you an open window. Like, Maybe, it's very- yeah. I'm just going off physicality. She reminds me of my junior high gym <laughs> teacher so bad with that haircut. She does have a short haircut and sort of uh, a tan and is tan, which is every gym teacher I've ever had as well. And honestly, I would love to have a Shoshana SVU episode. Oh, like, yeah. I think she would be really good. I don't know what she's doing. We should try to work that out. Let's call some people. She's doing indie movies. She's doing indie movies. But now, you know, she's probably pickling stuff. I bet oh, she's yeah. gardening, pickling. Maybe making resin necklaces. Yeah. Yeah. Feather is living a really bad life, like basically at court. And she's like, she turns around and begs the Hallanders like not to do this to her. There's Graylick, my least favorite person, is there asking for $20,000 bail. And her lawyer's like, she's indigent. She has no money or friends or family. And Graylick's like, well, if she would give a name, she'd be less of a flight risk. The judge is like, this is a window for you, my darling. And um, Feather won't do it. Erica has like a full freak attack, like breakdown in the courtroom. And it, like, cause she's convinced that Feather knows where Heather is. And, you know, Nikki's like, she doesn't know anything. And, and Erica's going crazy. This is at the point of the episode where I realized that Erica has something I like to call Broadway face. Like I can just immediately tell that Erica is a Broadway star. And of course I looked her up and she is two-time Tony nominee, Kate Baldwin. So Whoa. I, when she was screaming, I was like, this is a woman who knows how to play to the back of the theater. <laughs> like, so she is a Broadway gal. Um, Wait, what plays was she in? She was in Hello, Dolly with Bat Midler, I think. And wow. she's been in like, um, is it Finian's Rainbow, I think? Like she's been in a bunch Wait, of. I saw Hello, Dolly with Bat Midler twice. Oh, I bet you maybe I you bet saw, I saw her. her. She, yeah, you probably saw her. I oh can't believe you saw that God. twice. I was dying to see that. And I went to New York the day after it closed. Anyway. Well, I went once to previews and like someone had a heart attack in the audience. She messed up words. She it was like it was truly before the premiere. It was the previews. So it was kind of a mess. Not really. It was amazing. Um, And, you know, I cried, uh, you know, seeing Bette Midler. But when I went a few months later, I, I felt really lucky that I got to see it a few months in and see Bette Midler just like fully in it fully like improv it was awesome i'm still like devastated i didn't get to see it that miller's like my childhood and like adulthood hero i'm obsessed with her um so munch and Graylick basically get erica once she's calmed down they get her to the precinct where they kind of like reveal to her like you're the one that gave all this information to this girl like everything that you posted about on your blog helped her build this woman like build like a case to become this your your sister so she's humiliated well she kind of calms down and is like okay this isn't like a huge conspiracy where this one girl knows where my sister is and like did a body snatching thing and like we're trying to replace her elliot says svu is taking over heather's case we're really going to try to find her Olivia tracks down where Feather got the tattoo and finds out that the guy who paid for it with a credit card is named Carl Vasco, and he matches the description that the priest gave of the man from church. So they go to visit this guy, Carl Vasco. He fucking runs immediately. Ice-T sucker punches him while he's running. Well, this had some of my favorite moments because as he starts running, Stabler says, we got a runner. And then when Finn punches him, he goes, we got a dropper. Yeah. And I liked that. Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> it's not even a saying. It's just like, it's just, I don't know. I really loved it. Right. So Olivia does some very questionably legal police work where she goes, oh, I thought I heard him come down into the basement so that she can check out the basement and see if like, Feather's story checks out. 
Olivia goes down into the basement, finds exactly what she had described, the mattress on the floor, the tub, the lawn chair, toilet, like it's all there. It's like a a true, true nightmare. And I know it's because these people are sadists and evil, but like if you're going to like hold someone captive forever, why not make it nice? I never. Why not? I just give her a bed. I just don't get it. I mean, I there I shouldn't be able to understand it, but I just I'm like, give her just get some plumbing. What's the issue? Yeah. Okay, so Warner says they got DNA from Vasco, which he did not have to offer because basically Finn gave him a bloody ass nose. So his DNA was all over the place and it matches the semen that was on Feather's dress. So Olivia's like, great, about to leave the room. Classic Warner move where she goes, I'm not finished. Okay. And her curls are looking extra luscious. In yeah, this she's got that bounce, baby. Uh, she ran the DNA from Feather's rape kit and found out that her name is Kristen Vuselik. She is in CODIS for being kidnapped six years earlier. Her mother thought it was a parental kidnapping by her husband, Carl Vuselik. Flashes a picture of Carl Vuselik. It is Carl Vasco. So he held his own daughter in a dungeon for six years as a sex slave. That's like a big <sighs> twist. Um, then we see... A great scene that Olivia and Elliot do all the time where they kind of do like a good cop, bad cop. They do sort of like a feminist, misogynist thing together where like Elliot's like, hey, you're on the rag. Get out of here. Let me talk to my man face to face, basically. What's crazy is when they first start questioning Carl, he's like, I'm a good man. I pay my taxes. I go to church. I volunteer. I'm a pillar of the community. It's like, what? Like, how can you be so delusional? And then he's like, They're like, how about your ex-wife, Marcy? And he's like, she's a shrieking, man-hating, ball-busting bitch. Not too different from some of the reviews we've gotten for this podcast, uh, Lisa. (laughs) And uh, I'm like, oh, no, she's a man-hating, ball-busting bitch after being married to a prince like you. How is that possible? Elliot kind of like, though, gets tries to get on his side, is like, I know the type. They, They get into a fight right in front of him. Like, it's obviously a game that they play. So that Elliot appears like an ally. And he's like, I want to talk to Kristen. Like, she's a good girl. She'd never say a word about me. And then he goes, where's Kristen? I want to see her. And Olivia goes, and I'd like to see you castrated with a rusty steak knife. Neither are going to happen, but we can both dream, which is very similar to a line she has in another episode where she goes, and I'd like your balls in a blender, but ain't life a bitch. That's like a very (laughs) Olivia. It's a very Olivia uh, delivery. And so then they get into a thing where Elliot's like, you need to take a sick day. You're on the rag. And she goes, you touch me again. I'll sue you for sexual harassment. These two are ahead of the times. So Olivia goes to talk to Kristen. Well, first she she exits the interrogation room and Craig acts like he just saw a play. He was like, yeah, whoa, guys, that was great. And she's like panting like she's like, yeah, yeah. that was incredible. Like, yeah, because like, she that's loved like it. where their chemistry comes from is scenes like this where they act like they want to fucking kill each other and then have makeup sex. Um, OK, so she says so she goes to talk to Kristen in the tombs because she she's already like on her way to or she's in Rikers like and, and she's like, I cannot let this girl spend a night in Rikers after what's happened to her. So she explains to Olivia how she gained Carl's trust over time. He started letting her out. She had to work up the courage to run. Um, and when she got out, she didn't turn him in because she just wanted to kind of join the Hallander family. And she was so ashamed of what her what her father did. And Olivia's like, why didn't you go home to your mom? And she's like, my mom died. Uh, My dad showed me the news clipping three years ago. And Olivia's like, that's a lie. Your mom is alive and has never stopped looking for you. So they let her out. She reunites with her mom. Beautiful moment. 
Carl is remanded without bail. Olivia calls to give Kristen and Marcy the good news that he's not getting bail. And Kristen has gone missing. She went to go, quote unquote, talk to someone. And they're like, well, the only people she knows are the Hallanders. So they go to the Hallanders. The mom is like a terrible liar. They're like, have you seen Kristen? She's like, no, I haven't. <laughs> like, she's just like, she really cannot lie. And then Erica is like, wait, we just saw her and Nikki together. What are you talking about? So then the mom admits that Nikki said she knew Kristen wasn't Heather and that she better leave before the same thing happens to her that happened to the real Heather. So Erica's freaking out. She's like, mom, you knew that Nikki had something to do with Heather's disappearance. And the mom's like, I did, but not until much later. I didn't want to lose two daughters. And I want to mention there's another episode like this on SVU where a girl comes back and says that she's this missing daughter that turns out the brother killed her and the father helped cover it up because much like this woman, she didn't want to he didn't want to lose both of his children, which is allegedly what people think happened in the JonBenet Ramsey case. But this is for another day. So we want to know where did Nikki kill Heather? So now they're at this rooftop where Nikki is making Kristen climb a ladder of some kind of like smokestack or chimney. I don't really know what the function of this thing is in New York City. And um, you've got to come up and see what happened to the real Heather is what Nikki's saying. But does this happen because Kristen has been abused for so long that she doesn't know how to say no and she's going along with it? Like, I would punch Nikki in the face. Yeah, it seems weird. Like, Nikki doesn't have a weapon or anything that's compelling Kristen to go with her. I don't really know what's up. I, I, how she's made. maybe this I think end she's is just, always confusing to and me. Nikki oh, like Kristen's kind of slight and Nikki seems like she could really like cut a bitch so I don't know maybe she's just worried she's gonna like beat the shit out of her I, I don't really know what's going on but she's like trying to get her up this ladder and Nikki's basically like Heather caught me doing drugs she was gonna tell mom and dad so she killed her it just seems crazy well also my favorite thing ever is you know Stabler and Benson show up to the crime scene because it's their job and then so is Heather's sister. Like, why? Yeah. I just love that they brought her along to this crime situation. Yeah. So Nikki is about to, like, jump into the chimney again. I don't know what this chimney thing is. I don't know. Will that immediately kill you? Where does it lead? I don't know what this thing is. But she's like, you've always hated me. The whole family has. And then uh, they eventually talk her into coming down. And on her way down, she just kind of looks at Kristen and is like, the police gave up looking for Heather a long time ago. Why did you pick us? But in a way, it's good she did because now Heather's murder is solved. And yeah, but where is the body? Is it in this heat it's thing? It's in or did that it like smokestack thing. Wow. Yeah. Which at this point, it's been four years. So it's probably like, you know, just decomposed bones, you know, but I'm just really glad that um, Kristen gets to be with her mother. I know. Well, wait until we get into the real. If you guys think that was traumatic, wait until we get into the real crimes. Jeez Louise. And I want to mention the woman. I mean, great actors everywhere, but she just kills it. Like, she's such a good actress. The woman who plays Feather slash Kristen? Yeah. Yeah. And that was Stranger. So uh, hang out and we will be right back with the real life cases that inspired this episode. <laughs> So um, this episode is based on a couple crimes, and one of them is the case of Frederick Bourdin. Bourdin? I don't know. Yeah. It's French. But, um, well, and 
there's a documentary made about him in 2012 called The Imposter. Fun fact, I did see it on my 25th birthday with my ex-boyfriend, which is insane <laughs> because like you're supposed to celebrate. And after we had sushi with my family, we went to watch this crime documentary. That was the most insane thing I had ever seen. It's truly unbelievable from top to bottom. But so in 1994, a 13-year-old boy, Nicholas Barclay, went missing from San Antonio, Texas. And it didn't make the news. You know, the mom, Beverly, says it was news to us, but no one really cared. And uh, the last day, what happened was he went to play basketball and he was supposed to be home by dinner. And he called home. But his mother, Beverly, was asleep. His older brother, Jason, answered the phone and said, mom's asleep. Walk home. And that was the last anyone had seen Nicholas. So that was it. And then there's a sister, Carrie, and she, this was really interesting to me. I'd never thought about that, but she goes, the emotions of when you find out something like this, she said, 24 hours of crying, then you're worried sick, and then you get mad, then get scared, and then you get empowered. So they really did try to find him, but they didn't really have big time support in any way. And he was a really cute, blonde, really fun kid, like all his home movies seem like I would have loved to babysit this kid. So then the documentary goes to three years and four months later after Nicholas Barclay's disappearance in Linares, Spain. The police get a call from a tourist couple that they found some teenage boy that is scared and alone and um, is just like fucked up and it seems like he needs help. The police come and they try to interact with this teenage boy and he's not speaking. He's not talking. So they take the kid in. Now, this teen boy ends up being a 23 year old man named Frederick, and it is not a kid at all. And he gives advice on how to be an imposter. And he's like, you just have to fully fucking believe it and make everyone else believe it, which seems like obvious advice. But basically, like you have to act like a 14 year old damaged kid to be able to get away with it. And that's what he did. And then further down in the documentary, I'll share it now, you find out there was no tourist couple. He called the police pretending to be this couple calling and saying they found a teen. So already he's setting the cops up to believe there's a teen boy when it's clearly a 23 year old man. So it's pretty Whoa. fucking shocking. And he has a long history of impersonating people. Um, his mother was a single mother who kind of didn't really like him that much. And his dad was from Algeria and bounced. But his grandfather was super racist and was like, "I, you need to abort this kid. So he just like grew up in not a very loving home. And so from a young age, pretended to be orphans and different kids to get love from other people. So he would constantly pretend to be a kid to get into shelters and juvenile centers and just take identities of children to feel like he belonged. So that's kind of the background of this guy. Wow. Yeah. And he says, like, with the cops, you never tell them what happened. You don't say anything to make them believe that something awful happened. And I'd like to say I use this tactic once because... When I was in college, I started stand-up comedy and was like, I don't need college anymore, but I had to finish. And so I was like really bad at attending class. But my mom always told me never lie about health or like personal trauma. That's like bad energy in the world. So I had to get a pass on all of my absences. So I just basically made it seem like something horrific happened to me, but I didn't share what it was. And every teacher okayed it except for one. <laughs> 
should I, I don't know if this is, if you guys think I'm a bad person now, but I had to pass college (laughs) (laughs) and I didn't actually lie. I was just like, oh, things are hard. Okay. So he's playing lots of games. He knows if he doesn't talk, they'll eventually have to put him in a shelter. And then after a while of him not talking and them not being able to identify him, they get, they get annoyed. And they're like, listen, kid, if you don't tell us who you are, we're going to fingerprint you and we're going to find out. So then he goes, he understands like, oh, if they fingerprint me, I will get caught. I will go to jail. What am I going to do? So he tells them that he's an American that ran away and he's willing to contact his family back in America. But since the time zone difference, they need to let him into the office at night and he will call his family alone and he wants to be left alone and they agree to this 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 whole story is unbelievable this is the spanish police yes, yes okay so they let him into the office at night alone in the office and he ends up calling a new york city police department saying hey i'm a cop in spain we found a kid here that's american and starts describing himself like can you help me find him? And they're like, well, we can't, but we will connect you to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So he pretends to be a police officer to get information from the center. And they're like, it could be this kid. So then he goes, send it over. And then we can check if this is the kid or not. So they send him a photo of Nicholas Barclay. And he goes, yep. We got him. Thank you. So now he's going to be Nicholas Barclay. He's a very quick thinker, pretty impressive. And so he um, finally admits, like, I'm this kid. I was taken into a sex slavery ring and I'm kind of scared to call back home. But this is my sister. And let's see what happens. So special agent Nancy B. Fisher, who I'm kind of obsessed with, um, she's in the FBI in San Antonio. And she worked there from 1978 to 2004. Wow. That's impressive. Like 26 years. Yeah. Wow. Your math skills are even more impressive. I can't (laughs) believe you did that. Um, But yeah, so she was like, oh, I have to interview him ASAP as soon as he gets back from America. She says it's super rare to find a kid that's missing for years. Usually they're never found or they're found dead. So and to be found in a different country like that rarely happens. And so they needed to see what happened to this child. Then he gets a colored photo of the boy and this kid has blonde blue eyes. He's brunette brown eyes and he's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. What am I going to do? So he ran away and wanted to go hitchhike. And then the people that picked him up from hitchhiking were American authorities that were there to help with the case. So he ends up (laughs) getting picked up by an agent that was like, are you Nicholas? We've been looking for you. So his plan goes awry. But. The saving grace with this case is Nicholas had a gap in his teeth and so does this guy. So the gap is like so instrumental. Um, He ends up dyeing his hair blonde and Nicholas, who is 13, had tattoos. So he had a girl in the shelter tattoo him. So they had similar tattoos. Um, The sister meets him and is like, you look like Uncle Pat. I love you. And then he's like covered up. He looks like um, the invisible man. I mean, he's wearing glasses, hoods, scarves, like so covered up. But the sister is so happy to see him and starts showing him tons of photos. Like, do you remember this? Do you remember this? This is your mother. Remember, remember, remember. Yeah. So showing him all these photos. And, you know, the sister says he was really quiet. He was really different. He held back. He was whispering. But, you know. You know, he was tortured for four years. What do you expect? You don't expect to see the same person. 
So the judge and the police and the Spain people don't believe this, but the Americans and the sister are like, no, we do. So the Spain people test him and show him photos from his life. And because the sister, Carrie, showed the photos, he knew. So he got four out of the five photos correct and named everybody. And so by that point, they're like, okay, this is obviously Nicholas Barclay. So um, they declared him a citizen, gave him a passport and flew him on over. And the thing is, in the hotel overnight, he thought, okay, I have a passport. I can do whatever I want now. I can run away and live my life. But then this yearning for love and family. And he was like, this is obviously a loving family that I can be with. Like they flew all the way over here to come get me. And um, this is a small town vibe. Like she has never been out of side of the country. She, this was her first time flying like this. Okay. So he shows up to San Antonio. The family meets him. They're all like, okay, he's quiet and weird, but we don't know what's happened to him. We're just happy to have him back. And then he is very disappointed because he's in San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> so he's like, I'm going to America. And he, of course, expected city life and metropolitan people and everything. And then he's just in Texas and is like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> so. He arrives at the house and one of the fears he has is that the real Nicholas will come back. And that's obviously going to fuck them over. They wanted him to have a normal routine. So they watched movies, lunch, dinner, and they really like helped him out. The only thing that's weird is Jason, the brother, didn't really look at him, came to visit and just said, good luck and then left. Huh. And so that's his only interaction with this brother, Jason, who is the person that took the phone call from Nicholas the last moments that he was left alive. So a little shady. So November 4th, 1997, the FBI lady meets him to do the first interview and get accounts of everything. And she immediately is like, this man has a shadow of a beard. This is what is going on. He is not a young teen. He was very nervous and uncomfortable. And then and at this point, he's supposed to be 16. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, four years. Yeah, yeah. 16, 17. 17. Yeah. But he's really 23. And then the story he claims, I hope no one is living through this kind of horrendous stuff. Like, but he says the mil it's a military sex ring that the military took him, that the military put him in a van and a plane. He was chloroformed all the time. He was subjected to high ranking military sexual abuse, raped, molested, broke his hands. They burnt him. He had to eat insects. His foot was broken. He was experimented on. They put needles in his eyes. And that's why his eye color changed because they needed to change his eye color so he wouldn't be identified. Um, they used torture techniques on him with headphones, screaming, yelling. If he spoke English, he was beaten, which is why he had this accent. Because everyone's like, why is he speaking in a French accent? what's going on <laughs> and so he came up with this idea that if he spoke english they would beat him and that's why he speaks so weird now they put solutions in his eye um and then at one point he was able to run and he just like ran 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 and ran away and like he should be a writer on svu yeah honestly. i was gonna say that literally <laughs> sounds like he just watched a marathon of svu on usa and then was like okay here's what happened to me boom 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 <laughs> So then the FBI was very shaken by this account and said normal people don't come up with this stuff. And he did have cigarette burns and broken limbs and he had all of these things. So he was like, fuck, yeah, this is the last border I win. So they told him, do not go on the news. Do not say any of this because we need to catch these people that oh did my this God. to you. I am, in, I am intrigued beyond intrigued. Like, I know nothing about this story. It's so wild. 
So then he ends up going on the news because to him, he goes, if I'm on the news saying I'm Nicholas, it makes it more and more real. Yeah. So he totally defies their orders and goes on the news. And Charlie Parker, who I want to marry, um, is a private investigator who is like, nah, I don't believe any of this. Uh, He makes it a personal mission to investigate uh, this case. So then the PI was like, okay, the eyes are different colors. And to me, it's like, you don't even have to be that talented of a PI to realize that. Like, what the fuck is going on with everybody? And then he learned this tip from Scotland Yard that they use this years, like for a long time, they used ears to identify people yeah, because ears don't change and ears are just as good as a fingerprint. So he called the FBI lady, he got a photo and basically the ears didn't match. So he knows that this is baloney. So the PI calls the FBI woman and, but that Nancy is like, but why would a family take in a stranger? You know, okay, that's not him, but that's really fucking weird that this family would take in someone that is clearly not Nicholas. But he goes to high school. He starts his new American life. And the P.I., God bless him, he thinks this is a spy, that he's going to bomb everyone. And he is like an intelligence person that's here to do terrorism. So so they bring him to Houston with this new information under the guise of a forensic interview to help him with his trauma. But really, it's more investigative. And Bruce D. Perry is an MD and PhD at the Texas Children's Hospital. He knew immediately something was wrong. He goes, this kid did not experience these things because he is not going through the normal physiological change that happens in a person when they talk about something this traumatic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Olivia Benson in the episode knew something happened to fake Heather because she was going through those physiological changes when describing the trauma. Like you can't really fake those. So that's why she knew something was up. He also was like, no native speaker would ever have an accent. Okay. Like paging (laughs) Hilaria Baldwin, paging Hilaria Baldwin. (laughs) Like he goes, even if you like were an English speaker, went somewhere else, you could always speak English. Like the fact that he didn't know what was up is very strange. Yeah. So a full investigation um, starts based on this information. I mean, if you can believe it, this is where it gets even more wild. So the FBI contacts the family And she goes, hey, you don't even have to show up at the airport. This is not Nicholas. This is a fraudulent man. We will take care of it. We'll pretend everything is normal, but don't show up to the airport. They land. Carrie is at the airport. Who's Carrie? The sister. The sister. Sorry. No, it's fine. So the sister. So the FBI lady, Nancy's like, hey, Carrie, this isn't your brother. This is a strange man. You don't have to come get him. Don't come to the airport. Carrie, the sister, shows up at the airport anyways to pick up this man that the FBI has told her is not her fucking brother. What is going on? So Nancy is like calling the state's attorney office. Like, I don't even know what to do in this situation. So they're like, just let her go. We'll figure stuff out. And Carrie in the documentary is like, I don't really remember her saying that okay the pi could not let it go the pi is doing lots of stuff lots of work um and he's talking to the neighbors and the neighbors say that that family was pretty fucked up the cops would be called two to three times a week there was fighting screaming and there was always issues so the fbi lady is like great i'll get dna yeah that's why i don't understand from the beginning why they didn't just test this kid's dna to see if it's like matches the mom or the dad I don't think they their brain was like this has never happened before. Yeah, this yeah. is the first case of its kind where someone was able to impersonate a child and get 
access and citizenship into this country. Yeah. So like this is not, you know, it's set a precedent. I'm sure they're going to handle these things different, but <laughs> they don't really assume it. So the FBI lady goes to the house to talk to the mom, Beverly, and it's like, hey, we're going to get the DNA. That's not your son. She refuses. Like she becomes hostile. The FBI lady says that she laid down and was like, absolutely not. I refuse. And the mom in the doc is like, I don't remember that. <laughs> so like there's a lot of forgetting here, a lot of amnesia going on. And they didn't need to prove who he was. Like, that's what the family is saying. They're like, we don't need to prove who he is. We know who he is. This is Nicholas. Mm -hmm. So it changed from a grieving family to something suspicious, because why would you let a stranger into your home unless you had something to hide? What are they fucking hiding? So after Beverly refused the blood sample, suddenly the imposter was like, oh, they killed Nicholas and I'm in danger. Like, now I'm not scared Nicholas is going to come back. Like, this is fucking twisted. They know I'm not Nicholas and they don't care. And they're pretending Whoa. that they like me. So now he becomes scared because he's like, who are these fucking creeps? Um, and then he suddenly is like, oh, she showed me all the photos of the family. She set me up for all this. Like, you know, she prepped me for pretending to be the brother and decided you're going to be my brother. So he's like, whoa, they're even bigger liars than me, which is like, hold your horses, you're a psycho. So we get news that like Jason, this older brother, is a bum and a drug addict and only cared about himself. And this is from Nicholas's old childhood friend. We get this information. And then what's interesting, the PI noticed that a couple months after Nicholas's disappearance, Jason called the police and said that Nicholas tried to break into the house. And the PI said that this happens all the time where if like you killed somebody, you'll call the cops to like have fake sightings. So it seems like that person is still alive. So anyways, Frederick's like, they fucking killed someone. This is crazy. I don't want to do this. The FBI lady, Nancy, is like, I need to get a search warrant because the mom and sister aren't cooperating and we need DNA and prints. The PI starts tailing him, following him. And in March 1998, Madrid called and identified the prince. And yeah, it's a fucking guy that's wanted by Interpol. And his name is Frederick Bodine. Um, also, he agrees to meet the PI for pancakes. So he starts talking to him and Frederick to the PI goes, I'm not Nicholas and you fucking know it. <laughs> and straight up is like, you know what's going on here. Um, and he had a, a pattern of false identity. They figure everything else. There's like a two minute montage of all his identities. At this point, he is faked being like around 40 people. Jeez. Yeah. Um, so... March 4th, um, 1998, the story broke. He got arrested and he's the only person in U.S. history, like I said, to impersonate a child like that. And then the sister is like, I'm sad. And then it's like, where's Nicholas? And then it's also like, how can I be so stupid that I thought this was Nicholas? So the imposter calls the San Antonio police and says they killed him. Like, you need to open this investigation. And everyone's like, yeah, but he's great. Like, why are we believing him? So then. It's kind of fucked up. And basically the investigation goes nowhere. There's no evidence about Nicholas. There's no evidence that the mom knew or the mom helped or that Jason did it. I think that Jason killed his brother. I do. Um, but Jason ended up overdosing, leaving a drug rehabilitation center and overdosing. So he's dead. And the family thinks that they're making him the scapegoat because he can't defend himself. But it's like, he called you, you knew where he was, he never arrived again. You know, this is what they, I think the movie wants you to think is that Jason did it. So it's kind of 
tough. Okay, so he's in jail. He gets six years. And this is my favorite, most insane thing. He continued to scam people on a phone in his cell. Oh what? what is happening? He Who's has getting his own a phone in their cell. There's videos of him in his cell with his own payphone calling people and ruining people's lives and calling parents of missing children, lying, saying that they found him. And no one is stopping him. Like, you have to watch the end of this documentary. He is legit in a prison cell terrorizing parents and oh no one is God. stopping him. I'm like, how does this happen? But what pisses me off the most is a woman saw him on TV and was like, I'm going to marry that man. And he got married and had five children. <gasps> so I'm just like... Why can I not find love in my life? And this <laughs> lunatic. Yeah, this woman, Isabel, was like, I felt bad for his story and I just wanted to be with him. And so he's the father of five children. Jesus. So after he got out of jail, he got deported and immediately started faking being other people. He was a missing 14 year old boy. But at this point in 2003, isn't he like 33 years old oh, at yeah. that point? Or like receding hairline. The the other stuff I watched on it, they're very shady. They're like, this fucker is balding and he's pretending to be children. <laughs> uh, like, But yeah. And then I read that he had a YouTube channel and I was like, oh, my God, everything. This is the best. I can't wait. And there's no vlog. There's no content. So I was very upset. Oh, uh, that's pretty much it. And then I don't know if he's divorced or not. He's obviously a liar. And that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Oh, and then wait. So then he pretended to be one other person, Ruben Sanchez Espinosa at a youth shelter and lived there and then ended up going to college as this kid. And then a representative of the college saw him on the news and was like, Holy shit. So like he got caught again, pretending to be someone in college and um, served a six month long conditional term. That's really it's just the psychology of that, of like never being able to be yourself and having to always be someone else is really wild. But of course, in this SVU episode, she was not quite so diabolical. She was just trying to, you know, fit in after she had a horrible trauma, which is based off of the one of the most horrible cases I've ever heard. It's literally stuck with me for years. It's complete nightmare fuel. No, and I need to say Kara mentions this constantly. You mention this case all the time. It's just so disgusting and horrible that like I'm going to take you through it really quickly. And it's just really, really awful. It's the Joseph and Elizabeth Fritzel case. Um, Joseph Fritzel is an Austrian man who kept his own daughter imprisoned in his basement for 24 years, repeatedly raping her and fathering seven children with her. So how did he get away with this? How did he do this? In 1977, when Elizabeth was 11, he started uh, sexually abusing her. The thing is, he had five daughters and two sons with his wife, and I tried to find out whether he had assaulted any of his other children, but I couldn't find anything. And apparently he just had a real thing for Elizabeth because she was very strong willed and spirited. And like they say that people like sociopaths, uh, psychopaths have more fun breaking a strong willed person's spirit. So. In 1981, 1982, he starts to turn a hidden portion of his basement into a prison cell. In 1983, when Elizabeth is 17, she runs away from home. But much like I mentioned with this Jeffrey Dahmer case, police find her within three weeks and return her to her parents. And sadly, this is helpful later to Joseph in painting her as this troubled teen who had run away before, even though she's running away from her father who has been repeatedly abusing her since she was 11. So one day in 1984, when she's 18, he lures her into the basement to help him put up a door to the basement. And once she helps him put up this door, he chloroforms her, locks her in there, which is where the episode, I think, gets a page out of this chloroform situation. 
and he convinces his wife and everyone else in their lives that she has run off and joined a cult. Um, And he says, I had to create a place where I could keep Elizabeth by force, if necessary, away from the outside world. She did not adhere to rules anymore. She would spend whole nights in dingy bars, drinking alcohol and smoking. I only tried to pull her out of that misery. So he thinks he's doing a good thing here. And like, keep in mind, this man grew up in the time of the Nazis. And there also was another similar kidnapping like this in Austria. And there's an interesting New York Times article about how sort of Nazi culture influenced both of these kidnappings. But after he kidnaps Elizabeth into the basement, she's there for four years. She sees no other human being except for her rapist father. Sometimes he would leave her without food or electricity to punish her, just like in the show, up to 10 days in darkness once he left her. Her mother, Rosemarie, which is too close for comfort to my mother's name, uh, allegedly had no idea. Like apparently the basement was Joseph's area where he worked on projects. He was an engineer, like he did work. No one ever went down there or questioned why he would go down there. This man was so ballsy that he even rented rooms out in his home. There was one guy that rented a room in this house for 12 years who said he heard noises coming from the basement, but was always told, oh, it's old pipes and stuff. So this is like horrific, horrific. So then in 1988, she gives birth to her first child, Kirsten. Kirsten ends up in the basement until she is 19. In 1990, she gives birth to Stefan. Stefan is in the basement until he's 17. And now this kid has trouble walking because he ends up at full height at 17. He's 5'8", and the room is only 5'6". So he has to walk hunched over all the time. And apparently all of them had to spend a lot of time lying down because the room is so small and like physically short. In 1992, she gives birth to Lisa, but after five months, Joseph takes Lisa and leaves her upstairs outside of the home in a cardboard box, staging it to seem like Elizabeth left the baby there because her cult wouldn't allow babies, okay? He does the same thing to a baby named Monica, born in 1994. And then in 1996, Elizabeth gives birth to twin boys. One dies, uh, Michael dies, and after three days, and Fritzl cremates the body. And the surviving twin, Alexander, is also taken upstairs at 15 months old and like discovered. And they they call these children foundlings, like they're children that have been abandoned. And so the notes are that his the notes are from Elizabeth and are like, wow. please take care of my baby. And they're in her handwriting because he's forced her to write them. Oh, my God. Yeah. So basically, he's also playing God. He's deciding which of these children gets to come upstairs and live a quote unquote normal life with him and his wife. And who has to stay down below. So he's also raping his daughter in front of his grandchildren. In front of his children. In front of his children and grandchildren. Oh, yeah. Yes. So then if the final child is born in 2002, Felix. But he has to stay in the basement because at this point, Rosemary cannot handle any more children. Keep in mind, this woman has already raised seven of her own children. Now she's taking in these three, quote unquote, foundling children that are her grandchildren. But... Social services is involved in this. Social services is there like approving them to have these children like they like they officially adopt these children. It's insane. So in 2008 is when this thing fucking blows up. Finally, thank God. Joseph allows the extremely ill uh, Kirsten, who is 19, to be taken to a local hospital. It's later believed she was suffering from kidney failure. Her appearance and everything that's going on with her, like a a severe, severe vitamin D deficiency, I would imagine. That makes the hospital kind of suspicious that they're like, we really need to talk to her mother. We need to know more about what's going on with her. And like, did she abandon? Because he told everyone that he just found Kirsten leaning up against his house and that she was abandoned by the mother. So eventually, I guess he probably realizes that this whole house of cards is about to come falling down on him because he eventually brings Elizabeth to the hospital as well. 
and the doctors, because like they want more information. Elizabeth's teeth are like rotted out. Like there, she hasn't been outside in 24 years. Like he has never let her out. Um, so it's obviously very alarming. He ended up releasing Elizabeth as well as Stefan and Felix too, when this whole hospital thing went down. So after Elizabeth is promised that she never has to see her father ever again, she gives a two hour video account of what has happened. And she starts it by saying, no one will ever believe me, which is wild. And luckily the world did believe her because this man is a full monster. So 2009, after a four day trial, uh, right before his 74th birthday, Fritzl pleaded guilty to the charges of murder by negligence of his son, Michael, the one, the twin who did not survive as well as decades of enslavement, incest rape. I mean, he raped her 3,000 times or more, they say. Like, it's, it's, it's fucking horrific. Um, false imprisonment, coercion, everything. Um, and he is sentenced to life imprisonment in a psychiatric institution. But it's like a psychiatric jail in Austria. It's supposed to be pretty tough. Like, I don't think it's... I don't think he's in a white padded room, but I think that it's um, it's probably somewhere in between what we think of as like a, a psychiatric facility and a, and, a, and a prison here. And what's insane, insane is that Fritzl was previously imprisoned for breaking into a woman's house and raping her at knife point. So he was known for that. He had a record and he was known for indecent exposure and he served a 12 months of an 18 month prison sentence. Uh, Again, I mean, what is happening with these prison sentences? That is not enough for raping someone at knife point, but in accordance to us with Austrian law, his his criminal record was expunged after 15 years. So as a result, 25 years later, when he applied to adopt all these children, the social service authorities did not know about his criminal history. I don't really think that you should ever have anything expunged that's a sexual assault, but okay. He had apparently a very fucked up relationship with his mother who beat him and called him Satan. And eventually later in life, his mother moved in with him and his wife into the basement and he locked her in the attic and bricked up her window, telling neighbors she had died and kept her locked up until her death in 1980. And it's unknown how long he had his mother locked up, but some newspapers have speculated it's 20 years. And what's Mrs. Fritzl's, like, she didn't know the mom was in the attic. She never asked about these babies. Is she being abused by him? What the fuck? I mean, I'm sure in some way he had some kind of, like, hold over her, but the basement was just his area. And, like, she never went down there and she thought her daughter ran away to a cult. I mean, that's what she she says. She's not quoted. They never, nobody ever talks to her in any of the interviews. Like no one ever has gotten to talk to her. And she, the Elizabeth had a really hard time with her. They, they were staying in a facility together, all getting therapy. And then I think she told the mother to leave because I think she was having a really hard time, like swallowing her, her version of the story. But they have since, I think, formed a relationship and the children do see their grandmother. And this guy, is he dead already or what? No, he's still in jail. Good. He at first tried to argue that this was consensual sex with his daughter and that he wasn't a monster and saying, oh, I, but he would bring the children stuffed animals. And once he even brought a Christmas tree down to the basement and it's just like really gross. And in our sources, there are photos of the downstairs. Like it's a little bit more like how you were saying before, Lisa, like, why would you not kind of make it nice? I'm not saying it's nice in any way, but there is a toilet. There is a tub like it wasn't a mattress on a floor and like a bucket. So I guess they just kind of got used to it. They had a television, they had a radio, like they, I don't know. I I, I guess that's how they survived. Nobody understands how Elizabeth didn't go insane. Like nobody can understand how that happened. I had one child in a hospital. I really cannot imagine having seven down in a fucking basement. It's just really, really horrific. But I have to mention like the, the sliver, sliver of a silver lining, kind of happy ending, not happy ending, but 
Elizabeth has had extensive therapy, as have all her children. She lives with all of her children. They got new identities. They moved to a tiny village in northern Austria. And this is what I think is so nice. The entire village knows who they are and protects them. Like if reporters come, they're like, get out of here. No one wants to talk to you. Like they have like full security around their house with like CCTV and everything. But also if anybody just kind of wanders into the town and finds out where they are, this town is like got it on lock. And Elizabeth has fallen in love with a security guard who was originally hired to protect her. He's 23 years younger than her. And get it, girl. And she got her license and loves to go shopping. And Joseph had a bunch of his teeth knocked out while he was in a prison brawl because a bunch of the inmates made a fake dating for him on a German dating app, uh, dating profile. So I, I thought that was pretty funny. And I'm happy that he's in jail and toothless. And that is the story of Elizabeth and Joseph Fritzl. It's horrific. Yeah, it's just like, obviously, the actions are all so fucked. But also what's so daunting is the the years. It's a lot yeah, of it's just it's so long. I mean, we've there have been stories of like this other girl in Austria was kidnapped. I believe she was in a in a basement situation for like six or eight years. And like Elizabeth Smart was kept for such and such amount of time at 24 years and having seven children. And then some of these children were raised with no sunlight. Like they said, little Felix, like he luckily was so young. I think he was born in 02 and got out. He was like five or six when they got him out. So he doesn't even remember that much of the basement. And he just was like pressing his nose against the glass, like looking at the stars when they got him out because he had just never seen anything like it. And what was the Nazi connection? Well, they were just seeing like these men that grew up in a Nazi time, like felt the sort of ethnic cleansing or, or like what he felt like, oh, my daughter is unhelpable. She's a whore and like uh she carouses with alcohol like i need to it's my job to keep her locked up and stop her from being part of the regular world you know what i mean it's like to me it feels like a it's just like an ideological similarity it's not like nazis said you should do this but you know just you know what i'm saying yeah i'm i'm glad that she has therapy and i'm assuming like the government gives her money and yeah i i I have a feeling that like because she's been provided security and the seat and like I have a feeling that the government just like literally gives her a stipend and like they're all covered. And that no one heard her give birth. I, it's really wild. I mean, it, he had like you can see diagrams of like it was like his workshop and then it was like behind the workshop, like where the room was created. And eventually she begged to have the place expanded. She's like, I have four people down here. Like, can we have more space? And he let them expand it, but they had to dig in the dirt with their own hands. Like he's like honestly, truly. I don't think I've like heard of a fucking worse criminal. Like he's so awful. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm just happy <laughs> that they're all like in this village living together and they get to go outside and kind of hopefully live happy rest of their lives after what's happened to them. Yeah. But we're going to have a very talented guest as soon as we come back. <laughs> Lisa, I'm so excited for our guest today. She has run the gamut of crime shows. She's been on Castle. She's We've seen her on Scandal. We've seen her on Criminal Minds. And most recently, she was on ABC's Marvel's Inhumans. You guys know her as Heather Hallander slash Kristen Vuselik. Please stay tuned for our interview with Ellen Waglam. Tell us how it came about. Like, did you audition for this part? Like, 
we like Lisa was saying, like, we do so many like co comedy auditions, the two of us that like we never have to like cry on cue or anything like that. So like, no, they actually it was. Well, it's going to make me sound way cooler than I am, but it was a straight offer. Oh, OK. OK. I know. Offer I have, only. Offer only. I have a feeling that's just the way they operate. I don't think that was like <laughs> personal to me, but I had done a lot of I think I had done maybe they had seen a um, I think I did like a finale of cold case or something where there was a lot of crying. Um, so it was a straight offer, which was surprising. And then, yeah, I went to New York and, and, but also it's also kind of nerve wracking when that happens because since you haven't auditioned, you don't know what, I mean, I would prefer straight offer <laughs> anytime, but, but you don't know that like what you're doing is what they responded to and they like, but that I feel like is more for comedy. It's harder with that comedy is so much, it's just a different muscle. And so with comedy, I feel like if it's a straight offer, you don't know if like they thought you were funny. You're like, well, I have no, we haven't, you know, I don't know what you're responding to. We were looking at your uh, impressive resume and like you were really like a crime show girl leading up to SVU. Like you had done Criminal Minds and CSI and Cold Case. So maybe yeah. they just saw you and all that stuff and we're like, that girl can cry. <laughs> yeah. Well, and since then you've done some more Dick Wolf too. Yeah. Chicago Fire and Chicago PD. Yeah, they've been they've been good to me. How do the sets differ? Well, Chicago, well you're in Chicago, right? That was the okay, yeah. You wanna that was so I can't swear, right? You can swear. Yeah, you can swear. Say whatever you want. Well now it's but it was so fucking cold that like you'd be outside wearing I think we were trying to do fall and it was in the middle of winter in Chicago for Chicago Fire and PD. And so I'm in a tiny, like barely a jacket and crying and you're just like, this is they're icicles. Like it was just so hard to do. So that was hard. Chicago filming outside in that winter was hard. New York was, um, we were indoors for most of it and it was just an amazing experience. I, I remember, you know, Mariska, I don't, I don't know at that point how many seasons they had done, but it was a lot. And she still went into work every day, excited about the work, committed to the work, like engaged. And, you know, sometimes you'll go on sets, especially if you're doing a guest star, you're kind of a visitor. And that was not the vibe at all. It was super collaborative and so kind to all the cast and crew. And it really sets a precedent for just the tone on set. And I remember being so young and there've been a couple other experiences. One was, um, I did a series we only were on for a year, but called outlaw with Jimmy Smith. And he was very similar in, in that he, you know, when you're number one on the call sheet, you really set the tone for how everything goes. And I just remember watching both Mariska and Jimmy and going, that's how I'd want to be. If ever I was number one, like that's how I'd want to conduct myself. Like, you know, it was a mix, a great, she's also really funny. So a great mix of, um, you know, people joking and laughing and a lot of love, but also extremely professional when it needs to be yeah. professional. Um, so it was really that episode with all the, I mean, I love all the jobs I've done and grateful for all of them, but that's the one when people ask, what was your favorite job that you've done? Is definitely that SVU. Also, because it was there was meat there, so it was fun to do. Yeah, your character was multi multi layered for sure. Yeah, and you had to scream at Marishka. Like, what was that like? You had uh, to just like fully be like, "Get out of here! I don't want to talk to you anymore." I know that's I can't. Whenever I have to, I think I revisited that just because of this, and I hadn't seen any of the episode in so long. And I was, you know, watching your face, you're like, "Oh God, that's my face when I do that." <laughs> it's like, oof. Um, it's great. She was so, we became friendly afterwards. And like, I would go to dinner at her house, you know, when I, if I was in town, she really took me under her wing. So it was great. That's a dream to be invited yeah. to Marishka's house for yeah. dinner. Wow. 
when the episode came out, did you watch it with friends and family? Was it a party or is it not because the subject matter is so fucked up? Like, oh no, what I, happens? I think by that point, that subject matter got to point. I, I think I had done so many of those like rape victims. <laughs> not that it's a laughing matter, but I just had. And then I think the last one I did was scandal afterwards. I was like, okay, this is getting a little. I'm like, let's put it to bed. Um, but my friends watched it in that opening scene where the mom, Tess Harper, who actually played, yes. she played my mom on a series that I did called Crash as well. So she, when she opened the door and I'm like, you don't remember me, do you? My friends thought it was really funny anytime then, like when they would come over and I'd open the door, they'd be like, you don't remember me, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that scene, I've always been curious when you lift your hand, like shocked, like you don't remember me in the tattoo. Obviously, the giveaway was that natural. Like, did you? Yeah, no. Did you? <laughs> no. Did no. the director tell you yes. to do that? Was that improvised? No, it was really like, good. Like, hey, could you when? Could you put your hand like right here where the camera is? <laughs> so we can get that tattoo. And you're like, but like, make it like you would normally put your hand with a tattoo across your face. And say, you don't remember me, do you? And so you're like, you don't yeah. remember me? Yeah, yeah exactly. it's very, you're like, I have a hand modeling career. It's yeah. very, no, it seems natural in, yeah. in the context. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was a good scene. Um, so wait, were you a brunette back then? Or? No, that's a wig. Okay, we thought we so. Knew it. Yeah. We knew it. <laughs> yeah. And they, they, they put my hair in braids underneath that wig so tight oh. that you just be on so much Advil all day because the... The headaches. Because, oh, like, you guys at home cannot see her, but she has this beautiful mane of blonde uh, oh. tresses that are very, like, wavy and curly. And that is not what we saw on the episode. No. It was definitely, like, a brown with, like, some jagged bangs. And so I was like, I wonder if that was her real hair. Good to know. Good yeah. inside scoop. <laughs> yeah. That's a weird. You've worked a bunch in, in New York and L.A. And as you said, Chicago. Like, do you have a preference? Do you like L.A. better just because you live here? And No, I love shooting on location because I love hotels and I love room service. Yeah. <laughs> Girl after our What's your go-to order? <laughs> oh, well, I always order two lattes in the morning <laughs> just because one's not enough. And then I don't know. My go-to order probably... A burger. Um, I remember when I was in Chicago doing Chicago PD and fire, they put me up at the, I think it was the Ritz. And Ooh. so that's paid for, but room service isn't paid for. Like your room is paid for, but any incidentals you have to cover. And so every morning they really get you too. Cause they were like, would you like coffee, Miss Wonkalum? And I was like, <laughs> of course, down in the lobby. <laughs> and then when I went to go check out, they gave me, well, I thought it was like complimentary coffee. <laughs> and they gave me the bill and I remember like getting to and I was like, um, I actually really can't afford to stay here. So, <laughs> you know, How much was it? A thousand dollars. Oh my God. Because you also have to eat room service a lot because you'll get home late and restaurants are right. open. So I got room service and they brought this soup and it, you guys, it was the most ridiculous soup I've ever seen. It was in like a coffee creamer that then the guy like poured into a bowl. <laughs> and it was so small and so expensive. And I remember just looking at the guy and I was like, <laughs> really and he was like i mean he knew too because it was just it was comically small a thousand dollars is would that's a that's so definitely sad. a tear-wrenching bill to get right? yes <laughs> i would cry yeah i did i was like um i you know so that's the thing is you stay at these really nice hotels but then you know i guess then you just cross your finger that they play that episode a bunch of times and that your residuals will pay for the for yeah the everyone go stream that episode like a lot <laughs> 
Because wait, so you have already, you've said you've played like this victim a million times, Mm -hmm. but like, if you were to get a call back to SVU, like, what would you want them to be calling you into play? Like lawyer, like judge, a mom, like somebody else, like a different kind of criminal. Oh, that's a good question. Let's pitch it too. Um, yeah. Well, we're hoping. We're hoping they're listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe I'd be the bad guy. Ooh. I've never played a, the bad guy. Because you just don't look like a bad guy. You I just know. look like such a nice person. So, <sighs> But that's always the funnest little twist, isn't it? Well, not to insult you, but you could be like the woman that, um, what's her name for Epstein's woman? Ghislaine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't oh, know if that's an insult, yeah. but you can be the decoy or the person that does the the grooming because you're because uh, you're not suspicious or whatever. That's a good idea. Okay, thank you. I didn't know if you would be offended. <laughs> no, like, you look like you would trap women. She's getting Ghislaine Maxwell trafficking. energy from you. Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, no words, but I I feel like you're really good at grooming young girls. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Something like that. Postmortem time, and I do want to give us props. I think we've learned that we're incredible at realizing if someone's wearing a wig or not. So <laughs> I don't know if it's our drag race viewing or what, but we're fucking on it. I have to say, Lisa, I think that's probably more you. I did think hers was a wig, but I've recently been very much awoken to the fact that I believe that so many actresses, it's their real hair, such as Nicole Kidman in the undoing. And many of my gay male friends are like, you're insane. You've never seen Nicole Kidman's real hair. And I'm like, you're right. I don't know why, why I think she has this beautiful mane of red hair. Anyway, someone tweeted and I agree. They're like, can Nicole Kidman do one movie in her real accent? Like, why can't we get one Australian part from her? Yeah. I just don't understand that. She's not that great at an American. So I think we should just let her live. But anyway, This obviously these crimes were horrific. This episode is horrific. Um, I would say what I've learned is that if your long lost sister comes home and tells you that she's been a sex slave for six years, why don't you not worry about how many showers she's taking? Why don't you just (laughs) let her take as many showers as she wants and don't worry about the water bill? Nikki. Uh, also i learned um never let your spouse have a room or a dungeon or a place that you do not inspect constantly thank you don't thank oh, you this is my tool shop i'll be the judge of what this kind is of, my private area you know on? what i was wondering too actually thinking back on it how did that woman not realize how much food was going missing like he was feeding five people down in that base four people down in that i don't anyway I've also learned like for as well as from so many cases that we've covered, like women are so fucking strong and resilient. It's insane. Like, I truly don't think I don't know. Show me a story of a man being held captive in a basement for 24 years and being forced to give birth to children with their own parent and how they can come out of it and try to make a happy life for themselves. I just don't think you're going to see it. I think most men would have gone insane by then. That's a really good one. Yeah. Like, I just think women are so strong. And like, I just, I, like I said, I had one baby in a hospital. This woman had seven babies in a dungeon. Like she's uh, extremely strong. Also, we learn this almost every week, but that Marishka's incredible to everybody. So yeah, a never ending lesson. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Don't buy the New York Post. Sex Slave in the City is not a punny cute title. Not that the New York Post ever wrote that, but it's clearly based on the New York Post. (laughs) They've done lots of bad things. You just told me recently they like outed 
Yeah, an they outed an EMT who had an OnlyFans. Yeah, they're gross. Like, how is that even news, motherfucker? We're in a recession. Like, yeah, people want money and no. you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, if you need, like, newspaper to, like, scrape up your dog shit, then oh, you can buy the post, but that's it. No one is using newspaper to pick up dog shit. I don't know. I don't have a dog. It's not going to protect you. That's I don't have a dog. I don't know how it works. Um, yeah, <laughs> also, you know, this isn't right, but if, yeah, if someone comes to your home claiming to be a miss you you can't trust them (laughs) get a dna (laughs) test immediately like i don't know that's the thing that's wild about this case you took us through is that it was in the 90s and like you could have easily just been like okay great left we could just get a droplet of your blood to compare it against his and we'll be on our way like just to even or to compare even against the mothers to make sure that you're a child of the mother yeah just don't take in loose strangers i (laughs) I don't know (laughs) Also, don't allow people to have phones in their jail cells when they're known to call and commit crimes. That was on um, that chameleon podcast I was telling you about, too. This guy was running scams out of jail, too. Like, I don't understand how people have all this access to Internet and technology in jail. But Well, in SVU, I've learned that sometimes the real big gangs are run from the prisons and like the outside gang is actually just taking orders from the inside prison stuff. That's um, true. We've learned that through episodes throughout time we learn a lot from this show can i add one thing that i learned yes if you're gonna come back as another human being you don't have to look anything like them yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can just impersonate someone with different hair don't color. worry about the nose matter. job just get a cheesy tattoo and you can be that person but actually to spin that in a good way you know the imposter guy from the doc he was very much like you just have to believe it and convince people and maybe we could flip that in a positive way of like when you go to job interviews or go out for an opportunity you oh yeah fake it till you make it baby like you got convince it. people that you deserve these jobs and opportunities and moments and like yeah yeah i think we could all take a life lesson from an imposter for sure go flirt with someone you think's out of your league and be like convince them that no you're gonna date me <laughs> you're worth it yeah <laughs> so just to spin some criminal knowledge Okay, now it is time for What Would Sister Peg Do? This is our weekly segment where we direct you guys to resources, articles, organizations that touch on the topics that we discussed in today's episode. So this week, we are going to be shouting out the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Their website is missingkids.org. You can donate, you can find resources on getting help and find out a lot about their work and and education at this website. And uh, it's really a great organization. So please head on over to missingkids.org for more. Next week, we're covering the episode Broken Rhymes, season 18, episode six. You can catch all the episodes on Hulu and Peacock. And if you'd like to get to know us more in our comedic stylings, we do both have comedy albums out. Kara Clanks is called Undefeated and one of the best uh, album covers out there. And my (laughs) album is called Glitter Cheese and my titties are out on the cover. So, you know, worth buying just for that. Yeah. (laughs) Listen to our albums. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to SVU Superfan and our incredible producer, Hannah Kyle Creighton. And to our sound engineer and personal hero, Annalise Nelson. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. To Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thanks to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Daniel Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. dun. <laughs>